Good morning, everyone. So last week, Ed was leading us and going through Jonah chapter 1. And one of the things that he was focusing on was listening and hearing from God, being obedient to God's voice. And as we sat through and listened to the sermon, I was kind of squirming in my chair because I was reminded of an event, or a couple of events actually, that took place in my life. And afterwards, I'm talking to my wife, Lisa. My name is Bill, by the way, if you don't know who I am. And so Lisa and I were talking, and and, uh, she said, you've got to share the story with Ed. I was thinking of, of the same story while we were sitting and listening. And so we shared with Ed about this experience. And he says, you've got to share this uh, Sunday morning. And so uh, here I am. And before we get into that, I want us to just be fresh in what we covered last week and part of what will be in in today's message as well. And it's in Jonah chapter 1. And I'm going to go ahead and read through uh, NIV. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck. And where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep, the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So last week, Ed was talking about listening to God, hearing from God. And he referred to it as having thought bombs. And, you know, sometimes maybe it's a still, small voice. Sometimes it's an urging from a friend. God will work in different ways to communicate. And we're about five years now. I'm going to go back in time a little bit. We're about five years into my new faith. And I think this was a time that was critical for God to begin teaching me what it meant to listen to him, what it meant to be able to respond to his urgings, his leadings. And one of the things I've been learning is how important it is to create space. Because in our lives, it's so easy to fill up every ounce of time we have with something. 
Sometimes that space is going for a walk. Sometimes it's in the midst of everything going on. You're just stopping and saying, God, is there something you want to do here? So I was on a business trip, and I had gone out to California. I had finished going to a conference for the day and heading back up to my hotel room. And as I go into the hotel room and go up the elevator, a gentleman walks onto the elevator and looks really distraught. And it seems best to help you really understand what this was like. The guy was about a foot taller than me, really buff, and a little intimidating, and frankly, not somebody I would ever want to upset. So as I'm looking at this guy, and I could tell he's really having a tough time. And I'm thinking, all right, God, what do you want me to do? I feel like I'm supposed to say something. What am I? I'm trying to get all ready, trying to work up to and waiting to hear, you know, that, that big mess. I, I know I'm supposed to say something, but nothing's coming. And so I'm sitting there, I'm praying, I'm having the kind of the back and forth with God. We're getting to his floor. I'm running out of time. God's not giving me anything to say. So as soon as the door opens, I just blurt out the first thing that comes to my mind. Hey, I just want you to know I'm going to be praying for you. This big dude turns around and looks at me and says, what did you say? I was like, oh, no. (laughs) This is not going to end well. And then he gets back on the elevator and the door shut, and now I really know it's not going to go well. And I'm thinking, there's just two of us. And what floor is he going to? Because that was his floor. So I'm getting really nervous right about now. And he says, why did I have to come in to meet you today? And I, you know, not having a really good answer to that question, I think I just stared dumbfounded. Anyway, long story short, here's what ends up happening. Guy turns out to be a believer very, very angry with God. We go back to the hotel room, and for the next two, maybe three hours, I can't remember how long it was, we prayed together, we cried together, and he shared a story of how his wife was assaulted. And he was so angry. And I, I wish I could say I was able to give him great counsel. I really was not. I, had, I tried to share like one verse with him, and he had like 15 other memorized passages or whatever it was, and then I was like, okay, this is not helping, so I'm just going to listen and pray. And, well, we get to the end of the night. I get his information. I put it in my, I want to say palm device. I think that's what it was, right? The palm three or something, uh, antiquating myself. So anyway, I get his information. I don't really do much with it. It's a year later. I just finished a book called Loving God. And this is part two of the story. So that was part one. This is a year later, and I'm thinking, I'm sorry, thinking about this guy as I'm reading this book. And I, I got to tell you, this book annoyed me. It, it was by Chuck Colson, and the reason it annoyed me is it's a book on how to love God that never actually tells you how to love God. And so I get like halfway through the book, and I realize there's no, it's not telling me how to do something. It's not here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, here's a cool acronym. There was none of that. It was just story after story of people who loved God. And it took me about two-thirds of the book to realize that that's what he was doing, that this was something I was supposed to catch. And by the time I got to the end of the book, I was like, this is an amazing book. This is really cool. And I started thinking about Mike, the guy I had met a year earlier. And this thought came into my mind. I don't know if it was a still small voice, a little urging, what it was exactly, but this thought came to my mind, you need to send this book to Mike. I'm like, that'd be weird. So no, I'm not sending that book. So I, I don't send the book. I think that's just weird. The guy hasn't heard from me from the last time we met, and so a year has gone by. Probably doesn't know who I am. Can't imagine what that conversation would even look like. So I don't do it. Next day, 
Now the urging's getting a little stronger. Now I think I am actually starting to hear a little more clearly, you need to send that book. No, that would be weird. I'm not going to send the book. And I need to eat better breakfasts because I don't know where this is coming from. So I, I go on. This goes day three, day four, day five. And I am constantly, day after day, getting this, you need to go send this book. We get two weeks in. It's 10.30 at night. I'm lying down in bed. Lisa and I have just turned off the light, and I bolt upright. What are you doing? I need to go send a book to some guy. Um, okay, right now? Yep, right now. And I, I tell her, I really feel like I need to send this book to this guy, Mike. Do you remember the guy, Mike? Yeah, I remember the guy, Mike. You need to do this now? Yeah. So I get up, and uh, thanks to Amazon, I have this guy's address. I send him the book. And I'm, I'm like, I don't even know if he lives there, but hey, somebody's going to enjoy this book. So I send it out. Next day, I call him up. Mike, you probably don't know who I am. This is Bill, and we met on an elevator like a year. I remember you. Yeah. And he starts telling me, you were the guy, and he recounted our whole encounter. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that was me. And then he's like, all right, what's up? Now I'm feeling awkward. I'm like, how do you tell this guy I haven't talked to in a year? I'm sending you a book. But I just blurred out, hey, I really felt like God wanted me to send you this book. Okay, what's the book? Loving God by Chuck Colson. Long pause. Wow. All right? Wow. You got to tell people about this. Of course, I'm wondering what this is. And he's like, all right, Chuck Colson was that guy in jail, right? Yeah. I just got out of jail two weeks ago. He was so blown away. Here was a guy who's trying to figure out how to love God after some horrific events in his life. And that book rocked his world. Now here's what's cool. God prompted me to do that. It took a while. But if I had responded day one, he would have received that book the day he came out of prison. We've got to surrender. We're going to sing a hymn together. I'm going to ask you to stand for one more song.
verse 3, Jonathan. Born to Jesus, I surrender me, me Savior, to Jesus. Today we're on our third week of a new series of messages working our way through the Old Testament prophets of Jonah and Nahum. And this is our third week on the prophet uh, Jonah. And today we're going to be talking about the most epic conversation we could have together. I, I really have prayed that God would use today. Today's not going to be instructional, not super practical. Mostly it's going to be inspirational. And somebody sent me this picture this week. I bought a little bag of air today. The company that made it was kind enough to put some potato chips in it as well. And they added to the caption, make sure you're not just hot air tomorrow, Ed. So I'm going to try to not be hot air today. Once again, we'll spend our time reminding ourselves of the most bedrock truth of all about God and about ourselves. This is the, the most... If you miss everything else, don't miss this truth that we can cover, and hopefully our reminder today will inspire us, because we're going to be tested this week. We know that. This reminder comes from the unanimous testimony of all of those who've gone before us and have been faithful in their relationship with God. Here's the front side of the reminder. Here's the front side of the truth. God is sovereign. The psalmist sang it, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And again, Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth and, and seas and all their depths. The author of the book of Job acknowledged it. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. The apostle Paul puts it in a way that's incontrovertible and epic. 
In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And when confronted with a profoundly difficult spiritual dilemma, Jesus offered this explanation. Jesus looked at them and said, look, with human beings, this kind of thing is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God is sovereign. And the backside of that truth is equally important to remember. God is sovereign, and for our part, we must obey. That's the only sensible response. That's the only effective response. That's the only safe response. God is sovereign. We must obey. Jesus one time put it like this, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many go there, but small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And he's not talking about believing the right things there, he's talking about the way of obedience. The entire book of Jonah is a resounding amen to this truth. God is sovereign, and we must obey, so before we dive in any further, let's kick this off with prayer. Father, we don't believe that we're here by accident this morning. We believe that you have drawn us and that you want to speak. So as best we're able, we break open our chests and ask that you would point and massage and urge your truth into us and speak to us in exactly the places and in exactly the way that we need to be spoken. Lord, help us to hear. Give us ears to hear. Teach us, train us, discipline us to obey you. Because, Lord, it is for our best. In Jesus' name, amen. As we said last week, the book of Jonah begins with a bang. There's no introduction. There's no, this happened in the year of, the kings were. It's a bang. God gives Jonah an epic mission. Hey, Jonah, go to the despicable Ninevites and tell them, I've got my eye on them, and it ain't good. And they need to change. And Jonah heard God loud and clear and then completely disregarded him and his mission and he ran away from God literally in the opposite direction. Jonah disobeyed as hard as he could. Soon we discover that Jonah's disobedience gets him and a whole ship of bystanders in serious trouble. Let's repeat. Jonah's disobedience gets him into serious trouble and a whole cohort of innocent bystanders, they get in trouble as well because of Jonah's disobedience. Their very lives are in danger. Jonah recognizes what's happening. He despairs and he finally relinquishes and he suggests that his shipmates kill him and put an end to their troubles. At least put an end to his troubles. Ultimately, they agree to pursue this strategy by throwing Jonah overboard into the sea. As it turns out, obedience is a stinking big deal because God is sovereign. He knows what's best. He desires and designs what's best for us. His purposes will be served, and he's bigger than we are. We must obey. Our lives depend on it. In 1976, 246 Israeli passengers were hijacked by a group of Palestinians and taken to an airport hangar at Entebbe Airport in Uganda. They were ultimately rescued in in what uh, is still studied today as one of the all-time greatest, most effective, most heroic rescues. There were, there were less than a handful of casualties in it. It was a miracle for the Israelis. How in the world did they pull this off? Well, first of all, the Israeli Defense Force uh, surprised the hijackers, but an important critical 
piece of information. They brought megaphones with them, and, and when they entered the hangar, they entered all of a sudden and very quickly, and they yelled through the megaphones in Hebrew for everyone to stay on the ground, and then those that remained standing were shot. Obeying that command literally saved the hostages' lives. The hijackers were killed because they couldn't understand the command, so they didn't obey. Sometimes obedience is a life and death deal. Marriages have been killed through disobedience to God. Ministries have been destroyed. Careers have been ruined. And sometimes our very lives are at stake. But even when the stakes aren't life and death, obedience is a big stinking deal because you cannot enjoy the benefits of a relationship with God unless you are actively obeying Him. You cannot enjoy the benefits of a relationship with God unless you are actively obeying Him. And yet, just like Jonah, we often play fast and loose with our obedience. We treat our sovereign God far too casually. Sometimes we act as if we know better. Many times we act as if our immediate pleasure or relief is more important than living the way he has prescribed for us to live. I want you to watch this video. In this video, Jesus takes on a form maybe much like he took on, much like us. And this says it all. Jesus, I have decided to give you this. Really? Yeah. You know whoever sits here makes all the decisions, right? I know, and I'm always making decisions, but you make the perfect decisions, so you just sit right down and start making them. Wow, I'm honored. I mean, this feels great. Kathleen, guess what? I just got my new credit card. It's time to go shopping. Oh, really? I thought your husband and you were going to pay off debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, money's kind of tight, but I figured he doesn't have to know about it. So do you want to oh. go with me? No. <laughs> no? Why? What I mean is, I don't know. Oh. So let me check my schedule, and then I'll get back to you. Okay, yeah, give me a call. Okay. Kat, what's going on? What do you mean? Well, I'm kind of one cheek in it here. Look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You wanted me to sit here, right? Well, of course. And whoever sits here makes all the decisions? Right. So what's the problem? Uh, there's not a problem. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Really, please, here, sit down. As long as you're sure. I'm sure. Okay. So, let's start over. Okay. All right. Kat, I noticed that you've been losing your temper a lot lately. Right. So, okay, Jesus, you know what? I know what you're going to say, but see, you, do? you don't know the whole situation, you know? Oh, I, well, all I'm saying is that your attitude is a decision. Yes, of course, but I have a lot going on right now. Well, I know you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure? Jesus, you don't understand pressure, okay? This I, isn't working, Kat. What? We can't both sit on the seat. It's either me or it's you. Okay, I know. You know, I just, I didn't think it was going to be this hard, but here, just take it. No, I'm not going to take it. You have to give it to me. Okay, here. Kathleen, make a choice. I can't. You just did. So daily we make choices just like this. Sometimes big ones, sometimes not so big but they all have far-reaching consequences for ourselves and for others. God spoke to Jonah of Amittai and said, Hey, Jonah, you remember that you turned the control of your life over to me. In fact, it was your privilege to do so. Your encounter with me when we first met, it was so convicting. You were happy to recognize my sovereignty. And you know that deep down inside you were made to be a prophet. Deep down inside you've always known it. And, and you've done the prophecy thing before many times. It's when you're most alive. I know it's hard sometimes, but you wouldn't trade it for anything in the world, would you? Okay, well, I want you to exercise that prophetic gift again now. 
in Assyria. I want you to go and let the Ninevites know that they are seriously in danger of my judgment. Let them know who I am and that I've had enough. But Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites. Now what Jonah wanted or didn't want shouldn't have been part of his thinking at that point. But not only was it part of his thinking, what he wanted was determinative in his thinking. Listen, Jonah never doubted that God wanted him to go preach to the Ninevites. He knew what God wanted. And he knew his God was king of kings, creator of heaven and earth. That was settled in Jonah's mind. And he loved being a prophet, but he never imagined, nor could he imagine, that God would ever want him to preach to the despicable Assyrians. So he decided to disobey God. He knew this was disobedience, but he didn't care Or maybe he just didn't think about it. Maybe he decided to practice some willful, temporary denial. To help him in this effort, Jonah wanted to get as far away from God, God's voice, and God's country as he possibly could. He might have reasoned that God wouldn't bother him if he left his home and ended up nowhere near Palestine. Perhaps he imagined, perhaps the pagans are right. And perhaps in their ideas of God, they've got it right. Perhaps Yahweh is just a local God. Perhaps he's God over Palestine, but he's not God over anywhere else. Disobedience always involves some level of kidding ourselves. I mean, it's a really big deal, or is it, what I look at on my computer? Besides, I'll do better tomorrow. Some of us are kidding ourselves right now. But God remembered the deal that he and Jonah had made. He remembered the bit about Jonah turning over his life. He remembered how Jonah had been designed. He remembered that Jonah was made to be a prophet. So God pursued Jonah. He troubled his conscience. He disturbed his sleep. And finally, he threw life-threatening calamity at him. He surrounded him by circumstances that were undeniable. Some of you know how this feels. You've had God pursue you. Some of you may be in that process right now. That's why you ended up in a place like this. Princesses, let me offer a quick note here about the story itself, because this is awesome storytelling. The passage is tied together in some beautiful ways that we don't really see in English. It was originally written in Hebrew. For example, the text tells us, listen to this, Jonah goes down to Joppa, to get a ship. And then he goes down yet further to the deepest bowels of the ship. And then he goes down to the depths of the sea, further and further and further away from his God, in his mind. And in the process, God casts a storm, the only time that word is used to describe a storm. And the sailors, in response, cast all their belongings into the sea. And then finally, they cast lots to figure out the divine response and the divine will. It's a beautiful storytelling. Once the identity of the culprit is revealed, the sailors want to know what to do. We need to look at Jonah's response in verse 9. He says, I'm a Hebrew, somewhat unusual phrasing, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and land. Here in the story, Jonah speaks for the first time. And in describing himself as a Hebrew, he was using terminology that they, the sailors, would have understood. Then in the statement, I worship the Lord, Jonah was actually offering a testimony. The word worship translates a verb that connotes fearing the Lord. 
In other words, this is far more than casual acquaintance. This is Jonah admitting, I am deeply committed to the God who made the sea and the land, the God of the heavens. Jonah is a million miles away from God in his head and his heart, and he still can't get away from being a prophet. Verse 10 tells us this information terrified them. That's understandable. And they ask, what are you doing? Now, this isn't a question. This is an accusation. In effect, they're saying, you're a committed worshiper of the God of all things and God of all places. Why in the world would you disobey such a God? Then they ask, what should we do? Obviously, they don't know how to placate this God. But they want to know what's required because even these pagans know that this is not a God to be trifled with. I don't know about you, but that's how my obedience sometimes works. Calamity strikes, and I want to do all I can to obey. I want to make the calamity go away. This is not exactly the kind of obedience God is looking for, but it's better than what he got from Jonah. As one commentary put it, quote, Jonah submits to his pursuer, but persists in his rebellion. He chooses death, passive suicide, over abandoning his flight and prophesying against Nineveh, end quote. Think about it. That, that writer's got it exactly right. Jonah isn't surrendering to God. I mean, nowhere does God get even close to requiring human sacrifice. This doesn't satisfy him. God doesn't want us to suffer. He wants us to obey God is not after punishing us. Our punishment has been taken in full by Jesus. He's after our obedience. Jonah doesn't offer these sailors a prescription for how God will be satisfied. He's quitting. Now I think he believes that these sailors are innocent and he must be hoping that God will leave them alone if they kill him. But this isn't noble surrender to God's will. This is Jonah holding out his stool saying, I can't decide, God. I don't want any of this. I just want all of this to go away. Some of you have been in that spot before. Last week I talked about Tom Blino, a friend of mine who uh, was an elder here at Gateway that died of cancer earlier this year. I remember when Tom found out that his treatment wasn't working. He wanted to be faithful and, and brave, but a big part of Tom simply did not want to do this. This past week would have been the 28th birthday of my nephew. He died of cancer when he was 21. My sister and brother-in-law don't want this anymore. They're done. I've spoken to some of you who are in marriages that are not working. You're damaging one another deeply, and you can't stop. You don't want this anymore. Or others of you who are single, or single again, and the burden of loneliness is, at times it feels unbearable. And almost all of us know the searing pain of disappointment at our lives. We just haven't turned out like we thought we would. We don't want it anymore. So some of us choose little or big disobediences to help us navigate those waters. Our assignment is too much for us, or maybe it feels wrong, or it's so completely not what we wanted, not what we imagined. Some of us are in that place today. Some of us are in the middle of an act of disobedience. 
Some of us are caught in a pattern of disobedience. Here's our reminder. It's a big deal. Our God is sovereign, and our part in relating to him is obedience. I really like Pastor Tim Keller compares us making a real relational connection with Jesus Christ to what he calls a life quake. Listen to his analogy. When a great big truck goes over a tiny bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. And when a big person goes out onto thin ice, there's an ice quake. Well, whenever Jesus Christ comes down into a person's life, there's a life quake. Everything is reordered. Now, if Jesus was a guru, if he was a great man, if he was a great teacher, even if he was a genie in a lamp, there would be some limits on his rights over you. But if he's God, you cannot relate to him at all and retain anything in your life that's a non-negotiable. Anything, any view, any conviction, any idea, any behavior, any relationship, he may change it. He may not change it. But at the beginning of the relationship, you have to say in everything, you have the supremacy. When the sailors hear Jonah's self-sacrifice solution, they try to go a different direction. They row as hard as they can, and it doesn't work. And then, if you remember the passage Bill read, a weird, spontaneous prayer meeting breaks out amongst the sailors. There's hardly anyone who comments on this passage who believes that these sailors have become committed followers of God. But they absolutely recognize that he has control over this situation. Maybe not all situations, but he certainly controls this situation. So they cry out to him, recognizing his sovereignty here. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased, they cry out. But the prophet is silent. Is he angry? Is he depressed? He's certainly done. Living in the middle of God's will is like stupid analogy, warning, stupid analogy coming. Living in the middle of God's will is like moving from point A to point B inside a fort. And point A is where you are now, and point B is the place where you are most fulfilled and most at peace and most yourself. Not perfectly so, because this broken world doesn't allow for perfect fulfillment and peace. But at point B, the experience of life and peace is real. It's tainted, but it's real and it's good. Point B is the place where you are most yourself, most alive, not perfectly, but substantially so. And God's will drives you from point A to point B inside a fort in the shortest possible route. The middle of God's will moves us to exactly where we long to be. It does not come without struggle. It does not come without serious challenge and even disappointment. But point B is our best shot. And it's a really, really good spot. When you step outside of God's will, you step outside of the fort and you begin to move first one degree and then more off of the best path forward. Has God given you some specific challenge? Ten years ago, 15, last month, spoken something into your life. Has he placed some specific call on your life that you keep postponing? Is there an area of active disobedience that you need to deal with? Why don't we? 
Why don't we always move forward in obedience? Why don't we camp ourselves inside the fort and move in the middle of God's will? Because we, like Jonah, don't want what God is asking, or we want it to be more convenient, or we want it to be easier. And our desires and our culture tell us it should be. Don't snooze on that. Our desires and our culture tell us it should be easier. It should be more convenient. So we choose an alternate route, sometimes to an alternate point B. Because there are feelings, and we've been told, that this point B is much better than this one. Let me give you a weird illustration. On February 22, 1911, Gaston Herveau climbed the Eiffel Tower to test a new parachute for pilots, 1911. He checked the wind, took a nervous breath, and began the test. His silk parachute filled with air and then sailed safely to the ground. Hervaux did not make the jump himself. He used a 160-pound test dummy. To one man, this was an outrage. Franz Reichelt was an Austrian tailor who was also developing a parachute of his own. He denounced Hervaux's use of a dummy as, quote, a sham. And one year later, on the morning of February 4th, 1912, he arrived at the Eiffel Tower to conduct his own experiment on his parachute. As Reichelt posed for pictures, he announced, I am so convinced my device will work that I will jump myself. Gaston Hervaux was there, pulled him aside, and tried to stop him. Hervaux claimed there were technical reasons why Reichelt's parachute would not work. The two men had a very heated discussion until Reichelt finally walked away. So you need to know, modern parachutes use about 70 square feet of fabric and they should be deployed only above 250 feet. Reichelt's parachute used less than 350 square feet of fabric and he deployed it at 187 feet. He had neither the surface area nor the altitude needed to make a successful jump. Herbeau was not the only one who told Reichelt that his suit wouldn't work. It had also been rejected by a team of experts who told him, the surface of your device is too small, you will break your neck. He not only ignored experts, he ignored his own data. He tested his parachute using dummies, and they crashed. He tested his parachute by jumping 30 feet into a haystack. He crashed. He tested his parachute by jumping 20 feet without a haystack. He crashed and broke his leg. Instead of changing his invention, he clung to his bad idea in the face of all evidence and advice. In 1912, Reichelt fell for four seconds, accelerating constantly until he hit the ground at 60 miles an hour, making a cloud of frost and dust in a dent six inches deep. He was killed on impact. We live in the most pervasive and influential culture in the world, maybe in the history of the world. We cannot avoid its pull. That's why we have to force ourselves to examine it and its assumptions at times to discern the story that it's telling us. And here's the thing. If our culture was right about what gives you life and fulfillment, if our culture was right about point B, their point B, and how to get there, then people like Demi Lovato would never overdose on heroin. Young, wealthy, good-looking, famous people would always be ultimately supremely happy, but they aren't. We know they aren't. We've run the experiments. 
We know the evidence. The culture solutions do not work. And still, we strap on the parachute and climb to the top of the Eiffel Tower and jump because we feel like what God is asking is too hard or too much or too inconvenient. I don't know where you are today. You may be two degrees off, maybe more. Maybe there's some active disobedience in your life. There's a stirring in your heart right now. Maybe there's some pattern of disobedience that stifles you. Maybe there's a call on your life or a charge from God that you can't seem to get to. So we need to spend a minute affirming God's truth. This is your work, each of us. Let's don't waste this time. We need to spend a minute affirming the truth that he's sovereign and we obey. It's not complicated. It's difficult, but it's not complicated. If you've got your phone, if you go to mygateway.life, listed there are four options for prayer. They also came in your program this morning, but you may want to look at it on your phone. Mygateway.life. There's a prayer for if you want to say yes to God. There's a prayer for if you're struggling with doubt. Wherever you are, I want you to find your place, and I want you to spend a minute interacting with God right now in what he said, what he's stirring, what he's speaking. Don't waste this time. I want you to to find a prayer that works for you, and then I want you to read it, and then I want you to interact with it. I want you to pray that prayer over again in your own words and offer it up to him. We're going to spend a minute in silence, and I want you to do some work with God. So let's pray as we do. Lord, stir our hearts Use this time to press in. Use this time to move us. Father, we do not want to be in the same place when we leave as we were when we came in. You have been here. And we pray this morning that you would speak because your servants are listening. I want you to continue to pray for a minute.
chorus, join in with me. Just what you say You're good And your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my life I may be your spirit's strong in me and my flesh may fail my God you never will I may be weak your spirit's strong in me and my flesh may fail my God you never will I may Your spirit's strong in me, and my flesh may fail. My God, you never will. I may be weak. Your spirit's strong in me, and my flesh may fail. My God, you never will. Trust what you say You're good And your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my God's people said again. <laughs> Have a great Sunday, an amazing week. You may go in peace.